I'd invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Hebrews. Looking this morning at Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. And we will be reading through verse 25. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. This too is the holy, inerrant word of God, and pay careful attention because of that. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would add your blessing to this holy word. We ask that you would bless this time now as we hear from the word. We ask that you'd guide us by your spirit and strengthen us to understand. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. In 1736, there was a Moravian missionary ship that was sailing to the New World. And on board that ship was a a mixture of German missionaries, of English sailors, and among those English sailors was a young Anglican pastor by the name of John Wesley. All was going well on the journey until the weather changed for the worst, and a great storm rose up and tossed the ship so violently that the main mast was destroyed. Panic set in among the crew. Screams could be heard even over the great storm. But the Moravian missionaries remained calm. They gathered together and they sang throughout the storm. Wesley, who was the designated chaplain at that time, realized that in the moment, he cared more for himself than for his fellow travelers. After the storm, when asked how they could be so strong in the face of peril, the Moravians said it was because they did not fear death. And the minister and chaplain John Wesley began to to doubt his own faith. Once they reached their destination, Wesley asked one of the Moravians for some advice for the ministry. And the Moravian answered and said, My brother, I must first ask you one or two questions. Have you the witness within yourself? Does the Spirit of God bear witness with your spirit that you are a child of God? Wesley was surprised by the question and and didn't know how to answer at first. But the Moravian, seeing his hesitation, simply asked this, Do you know Jesus Christ? Wesley replied, I know that he is the Savior of the world. The gentleman responded, True, but do you know he has saved you? Wesley answered, I hope that he has died to save me. The man simply said, Do you know yourself? This experience of John Wesley was a turning point in his life. 
You see, what this young minister was lacking was a confidence in his faith. His faith had been shaken and he was filled with great doubt. And so I ask you this morning, do you relate to this young pastor, John Wesley? Are you facing storms and trials and fear that your faith rests on shaky ground? Perhaps you're a new believer and you are struggling with assurance. Or maybe you are a long-time believer, maybe even a lifelong believer, and yet you are struggling with a life-dominating sin that threatens to overcome you. Perhaps you are fearful of coming to God and communing with Him because of the weight of your sin. If that is the case, then my friend, this text in Hebrews 10 is for you. And what I want us to see this morning in this text is that you as a believer, as a, as a uh, one who puts his faith in Christ, can have true confidence in that faith. And we are encouraged with that confidence to apply that confidence in our own lives. So you can have true confidence and apply that confidence in your Christian life. And so we'll be looking at this at first, where we find this confidence. What is the confidence that we have in our faith? Well, we find the answer in verse 19, verses 19 through 21. Look there again with me and see that you have true confidence in faith because of the work of Christ. Now, this work is twofold. This work first is the completed work, but it is also a continuing work. How is it that we find confidence in our faith We find confidence by looking to the author and finisher of that work in our own lives. So let's first look at the completed work. We can have confidence in our own faith by the completed work, that is, his sacrifice. Look with me again at verse 19. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, we find confidence in the completed work of Christ and his sacrifice. First, in verse 19, we find in the blood that was shed. In the blood that was shed, we have the perfect Lamb of God acting as the perfect sacrifice in perfect obedience on our behalf. His blood was shed for us. And what does that do for the believer? What did that day on the cross when his blood was spilled, what does it do for us? It pays our debt in full. It has cleansed us and made us new. It covers all of our iniquities as those who put our faith in Christ. It transforms us. It gives us new life and a new song. We are entered into a new covenant in His blood, as we will see at the communion table this morning. We are now, with His blood being shed and being cleansed by it, we now are transformed and placed righteous before our Heavenly Father. You see, this is very different from the old way. In the old way, in the Levitical system, the, the sacrifices were made year after year, day after day even in some cases. And each time a sacrifice was made, the blood of an animal spilt on the altar, then there was an atoning that was taking place. But that atoning never lasted 
for long. But this blood, the blood of Christ, is better than the old way. This once shed blood has now made a full atonement for us forevermore. But we also find that there is a second portion of this sacrifice, isn't there? And that is found in the body that was broken. Look again in verse 20 with me. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. What was it that happened in the gospel when Christ on the cross cried out and gave up his spirit? When he cried out with a loud voice, it is finished. What is it that happened? We are told what happened in Mark chapter 15. When Christ cries out his word of completion, the sky darkened, the ground shook, and what happens in the temple? The veil that separated the Holy of Holies is torn in two. A new way was made by our Savior. When we look at the old way, it was only the high priest who could go into the Holy of Holies. And it was only after the the high priest, the one and only person appointed to do that, could only enter after meticulous cleansing of his own body and uh, for his own sins. He had to follow cleansing and sacrificial rituals over and over again in order to even step behind the curtain without being struck down by the Lord. But now, in our lives... Because of this new and living way, because the veil has been torn, we now have access, unfettered access, to the Holy of Holies. We now have access to our Lord by Christ. No longer are we restricted by this veil. We are now declared righteous in His sight. And so we are able, with no fear, to come before His throne and to worship Him and commune with Him and to speak with Him. But there is a second way that the believer has confidence. The first way is in Christ, in His completed sacrifice, in His blood that was shed and His body that was broken. That author and finisher of our faith. But look at verse 21. Verse 21 tells us of His continuing work. It is Christ as our high priest that we are able to have this great confidence. It says in verse 21, And since we have a great priest over the house of God. If we were to look back and and turn back in our Bibles just a few pages to Hebrews 7, we would find that there is a comparison of the old Levitical high priesthood and the new high priesthood in Christ. The Levitical high priesthood was the old way, but now we have the new high priest over the house of God. And if we were to examine that text in Hebrews 7, we would find that Christ, as our new and improved high priest, is better than the Levitical way in three ways. First and foremost, in the Old Covenant, the Levitical high priest was really a signifier and a mediator of the Old Covenant. They interceded on behalf of the people of God before God himself, and they would would, act... offer sacrifices day in and day out, year after year. Again, with no surety of completed atonement. This was a constant battle for them. And it was one that could not be sustained. 
thousands and millions of animals' blood were spilt and their bodies burned on the altars. And yet for what? So that for the very next year, they would have to do the exact same thing over and over again because of the wickedness of the people. But now, Christ is the surety of the new covenant. That once only sacrifice has been paid through him. He is the one who has administered it as our high priest. It is now better and a once only thing. One time is all that is necessary. It would be completely unrealistic and heretical to think otherwise. Or to think that every time we come to this table that the Lord is sacrificing himself again as the Roman Catholics do. That is not what we believe, brothers and sisters. We believe in a once-only sacrifice for the remission of sins forevermore. That is how our high priest, Jesus Christ, is better than the Levitical priesthood. But if we were to look again, there's another way where Christ is better. In the old priesthood, there was need for multiple high priests, one right after the other. And why was that? Of course, it was because they were prevented by death. These were cursed men. They would die eventually. But our high priest now is the eternal Son of God. He is everlasting. He is unchanging. He is life-giving. And because of that, we have an unchanging and an an eternal and a life-giving covenant that we enter into because it has been established by our new high priest who is not limited by death. He is forevermore. But there's a third way that we would see in Hebrews 7 where the priesthood was insufficient. And that is the priesthood was made up of fallen men. These men were fallen and cursed by death, but what was worse is that they were fallen. They had to intercede on their own behalf in order to even intercede on behalf of God's people. They had to offer sacrifice for their own sins first in order for the people to then have sacrifices made. But what we find now in the new covenant is the perfection of our high priest. He is completely holy, separate from sin entirely, unable to be corrupted by that sin. And we find in Hebrews 7, 26 through 28, these words that sum it up perfectly for us. It says, It was indeed fitting that that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever." Brothers and sisters, our high priest is perfect and remains perfect. That we might have salvation through him. Our high high priest sacrifice is able to save to the uttermost. And it remains effective forevermore. Our high priest sits at the right hand of God, now being exalted to his throne. And given a name that is greater than every name. He lives and forever intercedes on our behalf, pleading His perfection and finished work so that we might have life. My friends, I have to ask you this morning, is this 
your high priest? Do you, like the young John Wesley, think to yourself, I hope that he has died to save me. I hope that his sacrifice is sufficient for me. My friend, what I want you to know this morning is that we do not have to hope because we can know. There is no need for hope. We can know that the Lord has died for us. If you are coming this morning to the Lord with your knowledge of your need of a Savior, if you are giving up your sin, putting faith in Christ alone for salvation as the new and living way, my friend, you can know that Christ's sacrifice has been made for you and that it is sufficient for you and that it remains sufficient forevermore. That is the beauty of our high priest. And you can have confidence in that. This is where our confidence lies in the author and finisher of our faith, in his completed work and his continuing work on our behalf. But the question still remains, how is it that we apply this confidence that we now have in our lives? Well, let's look at verses 22 through 24. And we find three ways Three applications that the writer of Hebrews gives us. Verse 22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near. What is the first application that we have in this confidence? Well, it is found in verse 22. We are told as believers to draw near to our God. We are to look vertically at that relationship between creator and created being. And my friends, not only are we now given that new and living way to access God, We are encouraged as his people, as sons and daughters of God, to draw near to him. Encouraged to do so. What a privilege that is. This is far different than the Old Testament system. We are no longer restricted. If you remember from Exodus 19, the people of God are brought out of of Egypt out of their slavery, and brought into the wilderness to worship the Lord at Mount Sinai. And what we find is that Moses is instructed to have the people cleanse themselves. For two days, they are to cleanse themselves and all of their clothing before the Lord comes down. And on the third day, the Lord would appear in a cloud. But not only were they required to cleanse themselves for two solid days before the Lord would even consider coming down, Barriers were also set up. Barriers and restrictions were placed around the base of the mountain, lest the people get too close and be struck down by the Lord. They were restricted. They could not come and dwell with the Lord as you and I can now through Christ. So when the Lord did come down, he came down in thunder and lightning and loud trumpet bursts, and the, and the earth and Israel both trembled. The Lord sought to dwell with his people, but they were still restricted. But in Christ, no more. We now have that unrestrained access. 
our relationship with God from sin that was once broken has now been repaired because of the sacrifice of our Savior. You and I, brothers and sisters, now become the prodigal son. You and I return home. Our Father now rushes to embrace us. He showers us with His kisses. He clothes us with His finest robes. He places His signet upon us, showing that we are from His household. And He throws a feast of celebration to embrace us as His own. We are the prodigal sons, now brought back home by our Savior. But you may ask, what does drawing near look like? We have this access. We have the encouragement to come to our Heavenly Father. But what does that look like? Let me give you two ways. The first is through personal prayer. We are to converse with our Heavenly Father. Brothers and sisters, this is an essential part of the Christian life. This cannot be neglected. If there is no prayer, is there true faith? Are you really part of the Lord? Are you a son of the Lord if you have no communion with him personally? That is a question we must ask ourselves because we are told that we are to pray to our Heavenly Father. We are given the Lord's Prayer on the Sermon of the Mount. We are told to pray without ceasing. We must retreat daily as we are told in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. It is a daily prayer, a daily communion with our Heavenly Father. We are to retreat to our quiet places and fellowship with our God. And we are to do so daily, knowing that He hears us, knowing that He hears our cries, our pleas at every moment and in in the midst of any storm or difficulty that we might have in this life. We have access and we are called to to personal personal prayer. But there's another way that we are able to to draw near. And that is what you and I are doing right now. That is public worship. The gathering together of the saints to place ourselves under the means of grace each and every Lord's Day. Keeping the whole Lord's Day holy, morning and evening, spending time for witness and fellowship and communion and mercy ministry. And most importantly, worship together. We are to gather together And this is, realize, an individual mandate. It takes individuals coming together, but this is a corporate command as well. It says, let us draw near together. We are to enter God's house. We are to come into his presence with singing and with thanksgiving and with confession of our sins. And we are to worship him. My friends, this right here, what we are doing right now is a preparation for eternity. That is the future that we have. We, we can look at Revelation 7 and read about the heavenly hosts that are raising their voices together in great singing, bringing glory and honor to his name. And we can read that and know that is our future. This is what we are preparing for. So that at every moment through all eternity, we might raise our voices. We might bring glory and honor and esteem to our great God. That is our future with the saints forevermore. And so we come in public worship in boldness. We draw near because we boldly can because we have Christ. We now have that boldness to approach 
the throne of grace. That boldness has been given to us because we are sons. Sons and daughters of our God. And we are able to gain his ear. But we not only do so in boldness, we do so in assurance, with true hearts of full assurance. Resting in the knowledge that Christ has died for us and that his sacrifice remains forevermore. If you are here today and you have been neglecting, drawing near to God, maybe it's because of a, of a sin you believe is so huge, so grotesque, so unbelievably awful that it could not be forgiven. And my friend, know that God has provided all of the forgiveness that is necessary to forgive you of your sin. He has provided all of all of the forgiveness that is necessary by his once only sacrifice on the cross. You too can have confidence and boldness to approach him at his throne of grace, to approach him in prayer, to approach him in public worship. This is our joy. When we do this, when we come before the Heavenly Father, we experience what the psalmist tells us about in Psalm 16. When he says, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That is what we experience when we come and commune with our Father in boldness and assurance. We draw near through Christ. But there is a second application that we have in this text, and that is to hold fast to our confession. We find that in verse 23. It says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. I don't know if you have read, you may have, uh, some of you are college students, you may have done it in the past yourself. But if you've ever read the Humanist Manifesto, this is a, a document of belief statements and affirmations of the humanist religious group. In one of the portions of their original document, it asserts that religious humanism considers to complete uh, considers the complete realization of human personality to be the end of man's life and seeks its development and fulfillment in the here and now. Humanists, you see, are uh, hold that the chief end of man is development of mankind, the furtherance of the human race, building a utopia free of racism and inequality and poverty. That is man's chief end. But realize in the humanist belief system, there is no deity outside of man himself. There is no creator, no such thing as an eternal soul that one can speak of. No afterlife, no one to answer to at the end when death comes upon us. And we can hear this and we think, that is utterly hopeless. Their entire premise rests upon the short blink of an eye life that they possess and all that they can accomplish when they fail to realize that sin will always reverse it. You will never have a utopia until heaven itself. And But they fight day in and day out, and that is all they give their lives to. Failure. Ultimate failure. But we thank God that the Christian's confession is so different, isn't it? It is so very different than this humanist idea. 
We don't focus only on the here and now, but we focus on the future. We focus on our confessions. Our eyes have been opened to the truth of the gospel. Our chief end, as we know from our shorter catechism, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. How much greater is that than any humanist idea? Our hope focuses on the Son of God and the work that He has completed and His promises to us as His people. That should be our full motivation. As one pastor has described it, we should be as horses with blinders on our eyes, tunnel vision in our hope of eternity. As Paul says, we run the race and we stumble, yes, but if we have that tunnel vision, we are always looking to the end, to that finish line where we can enjoy heaven entirely. But how do we hold fast? How is it we are told in this passage to hold fast? Well, first and foremost, verse 22 tells us that we are to hold fast without wavering. We are to be steadfast, brothers and sisters, unmovable, even in the midst of any storm or difficulty or whatever the culture would tell us. We are not to lose heart despite difficulties in this life. We are to remain steadfast without wavering in our confession of Christ as our only Savior. We also hold fast because he who promised is faithful. All of his promises have and will come to pass. If you read through Scripture, you can see that. You, you read of his promises to his people, and later on you say, oh, there's that promise fulfilled. In the New Testament, you see the same thing. The Savior is come. The one who was prophesied from the beginning in Genesis 3.15 to throughout the Old Testament, even in the book of Micah. The one who is prophesied is come. His promises are perfection. They are fulfilled and will be fulfilled. He will never leave us or forsake us, he tells us. He has given us a, a spirit that, he, that we might dwell with him in the Holy Spirit. We are to hold fast because he is the one who is without wavering. He is the one who is forever faithful. But we do this, again, both personally and corporately. This, again, is something that is required of each of us individually. We must hold to our own confession. The church as a body cannot save us. Only a true confession of our own hearts and minds, of Christ as our Savior, will suffice. But corporately, we are to hold fast as a body of Christ, we are to be like Roman centurions holding that front line, shield to shield, not allowing the fiery darts of our tempter to pass those shields. We are to support each other, protect each other, lift each other up. And that brings us to the third way. The third way that we are to apply our confidence in Christ in our Christian life is to consider one another. We find that in verses 24 and 25. Now, those of you with young children, I imagine it is not often that you say, I want you to consider your brother and your sister. Now, go provoke them. I wouldn't do that with my own children. They do that plenty enough themselves. But this is the idea that we get here in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 through 26. 
The reality of it is, is what the, the writer of Hebrews is saying is, in order to consider one another, we are to provoke one another to love and good works. Not to wrath, but to love and good works. Provoking one another. This is encouraging others. Supporting others. Pushing them to be better in this life than you are. Being disciples to young Christians. Throwing our gifts and and, and giving our gifts in ways that might help those around us. Pushing each other to grow in the Lord. Praying for one another. But notice that this provoking is intentional. It requires intention and humility. You don't just provoke something. Provocation doesn't just happen. It is intentional. You'll find this with your children. It's intentional, and you you discipline them because of that. You know better than that. But the writer of Hebrews is saying you must be intentional in provoking these types of love and good works. We're to put off our own pride and work Work to promote somebody else. Work to promote the greater good of the congregation. Not only for an individual, but the whole body of Christ. And we have to ask the right questions. How is it that I can be useful to this person? What skills and gifts has the Lord given me that I might be able to bless others with? That I might share with this individual or this group of believers? It requires humility and intention. But it also requires an active and faithful meeting together for worship. This we find in verse 25. We find how is it we are to consider one another and stir one another up to love and good works by not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more to see the day drawing near. We cannot neglect, brothers and sisters, the gathering together of the saints. This is where, this place right here, right now on every Lord's Day is where we get the opportunity to provoke one another to love and good works. And so we should take that opportunity. Matthew Henry talks of the Sabbath as the market day of the soul. This is the time. This is the time to cultivate that unity, that fellowship, to come together and to draw near to our God, to hold fast to our confession and to consider one another. And we are to do these things more and more as we see the final day coming. That is, again, intentional. It is a a snowball effect as we see the end of our lives coming. More and more, not less and less, more and more. As we look at our world and the state of our culture, it should drive us to even more commit to the public gathering of the saints for worship. What better place can you draw near to God than right here in this building, than right here with God's people, by placing ourselves under the means of grace, being strengthened in our own confession, by drawing near to our God in praise and worship, by considering one another. There is no better place that you can be encouraged, that you can be uplifted, that you can be provoked to love and good works. Brothers and sisters, there is a great storm that is raging in our culture. 
What will we do when it threatens to overturn our lives, to overturn our culture, to threaten our family? Will we cry out in fear? Will we seclude ourselves in our own minds and hearts? Or will we be like those Moravian missionaries? Will we remain calm? Will we gather together? Will we sing praises to our God in the midst of persecution, wave after wave of difficult circumstances in this life? And will we realize, like John Wesley did, that it was time to start considering others and seeking their own good? Let's pray together. Our merciful and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Christ Jesus, our Savior, we might have confidence, true confidence and boldness and assurance that you are our God and that we are your people. Father, we ask that as we consider these things, as we consider the idea of, of drawing near to you, as we consider the idea of holding fast, as we consider one another, we ask that you would help us, Lord, in our own lives to do these things more and more as we see the day drawing near. Lord, as we come to your table to commune with you, we ask that you would bless us, that this would be a great joy to us to feast at this table that you have designated for your people. We pray these things in the name of Christ, our only Savior and Lord. Amen.